Hello, everyone, and welcome again to Furloughed, Defining Moments Worth Talking About. I'm your co-host, Leonard Cochran, and with me, we also have Stephen Otterstrom. So, Stephen, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Leonard. I'm excited. Like every Monday, this is what I look forward to the most all week is uh, getting a chance to kind of uh, talk about our experiences and uh, find out how you're doing. So, Leonard, how are you doing? How, how are you going through this uh, furloughed experience that we're having? I know we're, we're now on week three. I, in some ways, it feels like it's been much longer than that to me. In other ways, yeah. it seems like time is going really quickly. How are you doing through all of yeah. this? I'll tell you, Steve, uh, I'm to the point that I'm losing track of what day it is. I will say that, you know, the first couple of weeks I had a lot on my plate and did a lot of things on my honeydew list and I'm reaching the point where I'm kind of losing track. And I'll tell you, it, it, you know, the emotional toll, uh, not that it's super bad because I, I still am optimistic that I, uh, have a handle on what to expect through this. And we'll talk about this in just a moment with some LinkedIn posting that we had this week. Um, but uh, each week, the state of Tennessee requires that you fill out a form. And so the first week that I did it, I had 7,000 people in front of me in the queue. It tells you how long your wait's going to be, kind of like being at the DMV. Uh-huh. It tells you how long your wait's going to be and how many people are in front of you. And of course, the numbers might be right, but the time was not. It, so it, it was well over 30 minutes. Uh, it was probably much closer to 45 minutes before I could even fill out the form. And then this week, uh, I it sort of slipped. Sunday came and went, and I didn't do it. I'm supposed to do it on Sundays. And uh, got in the form, and there were only good news. There was 1955 was the number of people in front of me in the queue. It's supposed to have been 10 minutes, and round about 52 people in front of me, and uh, three minutes in queue, it kicked me out of the system. <laughs> so it, it, it is a little, <laughs> a little bit of anxiety there. Uh, just... And obviously, you know, what, where are we at? Uh, we've got, uh, I know, six and six plus three. You know, we've got 18 million people or so that are unemployed right now, not all in Tennessee, but nationwide. So we know the circuits are overloaded and it's pretty tough. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's some of the logistical stuff that I encountered that caused some anxiety. How, what's what's going on in your world, Steve? Well, you doing anything crazy you know, or anything you happening you to you? The DMV. <laughs> you mentioned the DMV, and I actually went to the DMV this week. My 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 car registration was running out, and of course, all of the um, like the buildings that you would go into and and uh, do your car registration, those are all closed. And so in uh, Salt Lake County, there is only one DMV that has a drive-through window where you can bring your documents and um, put it up through a tube and then they send you down your temporary plate and you're good to go. And um, I looked online, I saw when it opened, it opened at 6 a.m. I thought, I bet that this line is going to be horrendous. I'm going to wake up early, I'm going to yeah. be there right at 6 a.m., which I was. I got up at 5.30, drove down there, um, didn't even do my hair, you know, so <laughs> I mean... <laughs> You can understand this is this is I wanted to be there quick. I got there this and it's important. I bet the line of cars at that point was at least a mile long. And uh, even oh, though they had goodness. three bays that you could go through, um, I was there for three hours. And I, I count wow. myself extremely lucky because when I was leaving the line, I, I calculate has 
had probably gotten to about three miles long. And, uh, mm. and the people that I saw in line when I was leaving, those at the end, uh, I would expect that if they actually got through, it was probably about, you know, seven or eight o'clock at night that they would have um, made it <laughs> uh, to register yeah. their vehicle. Wow. So, um, yeah, certainly there's there's some some things going on that way. Um, however, I think as, as far as looking at it from an emotional perspective, and I think this is I, I this week is where I really felt I'm over it. I'm I just want this virus to be done. And not that I didn't feel that before, <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really just at this point. Um, uh, it's like if I could talk to uh, the virus, I would say this isn't funny anymore. It's it's time to stop. <laughs> Crawl back in your little hole and let's not have any more of you. But um, apparently it, it's not really caring too much what any of us think. So. Uh, I yeah. did. I did find yeah. your post very interesting on LinkedIn, and and we we had a little back and forth. I know, um, actually on LinkedIn, uh, where you posted something you found in a book that really kind of showed an interesting valley, <laughs> um, yeah, of emotions. Yeah. And and maybe maybe you could uh, share with our listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely, Steve. Britt Andriota has written a book called Wired to resist. And so it talks about the neuroscience of how human beings just don't particularly like change. And I'm sure we're all somewhat aware of that. And uh, she is currently giving away a free e-learning online and going through that, she shares part of her books. And so Wired to Resist. And in it, she shared what I found terribly interesting, a graph called the emotions of transition. And I know she's taken it from someplace. It's not necessarily her own creative work. And you've maybe seen something similar. So if you could picture in your head for a moment, Steve, obviously you saw it online in the post that I had on LinkedIn. Uh, But picture the left side of the graph is sort of this small little hill. And then it plunges to a valley and then comes back to a a hill on the other side. So it's just an upside down uh, arch. And so it just sort of slips down. But what's significant about this graph, it shows the emotional aspects that we go through when change occurs. And this is any change, not just our current situation, but any change. And so it can start out, and I'll, I'll read through this relatively quickly, but on the downhill side, we, we may well start out with shock, denial, fear, anxiety. And of course, this is slowly plummeting down, anger, frustration, stress, confusion, depression. And we reach a point in that uh, emotion where eventually we reach resignation. And resignation is either typically one of two things. We resign to the fact that this is the way it is. And it's where we have that mindset shift that, well, it is what it is. I have to accept it, right? Uh, and the, Or a resignation could mean dropping out. And uh, in, in the case of a work situation, if you're flustered on your job, that may well mean quitting your job and going to find other work, those types of things. So that resignation is that turning point where you begin to shift and then you begin to work your way out of that valley. And so from there, it kind of goes from resignation to acceptance, skepticism, curiosity, creativity, hope, engagement. And of course, you can tell by the positive language, we're starting to come out of that valley now. Uh, We may have some impatience and then excitement 
and then finally we reach a new normal. And it was really interesting, Steve, as you said, we had some back and forth on LinkedIn. Uh, this is one of the most shared posts that I've ever had on LinkedIn. And uh, we, we did get some number of folks talking about that. And it was just really interesting. And to me, the message that I kind of took away from seeing the responses was it really resonated with folks. And I, I think it uh, just sort of captured their minds and helped maybe even give them some language to express what they were going through. I'm not sure what all, but uh, we, we did get some comments and you yourself had posed a question on there. Uh, you, you tell me your thoughts of this curve here and what you saw. Yeah. And, you know, I think what I found interesting about it, and especially as you talk about how this is one of your posts that has been more shared than other than any really any other post you've had on yes. LinkedIn. And um, I feel like sometimes we are so used to and especially in, in, in our culture here in the United States, you're not supposed to be negative in the face of negative things that strength mm. is when people are tough and when people always see the bright side and they never get down because that just brings other people down. But the truth is in looking at this, and I feel like the reason it resonated so well with people is because when you feel depressed, when you feel angry about what's happening, when you feel those things, it's because you're supposed to, mm. that's, that's the way you're wired to be. And, you know, my question on this was, and what I, what I loved about it is it just showed this is natural. This is the way it's going to go. You can't right. change it. You can't jump from one valley unless you're, you know, evil Knievel and you've got a really cool motorcycle and you can jump from one valley to the other. Uh, <laughs> that unless you're some sort of, sort of emotional stuntman, you can't go from one side to the other. You're going to have to go down in that valley and, and come back up. And, and it really, it hit me because I've, I'm used to seeing curves every day in the news now because we're talking about flattening that curve, flattening the curve so that we don't get such a high peak of, of hospitalizations and fatalities coming out of um, the coronavirus. Right. And so my question that I posed online is how do we flatten this curve, this emotional curve? Because I think it's illogical, it's unreasonable, and it might even be a little bit dangerous emotionally for us to say, we're just not going to go through the curve. I'm just not going to feel it because I feel like doing that. You're just staying in that denial phase, which is like yeah. the very beginning of your journey to get to the other side. Like if you can get out of that denial, that's going to help you get over there. So uh, we put that question up there. And what was really exciting is um, in putting that question. And, and real on quick, the, Steve, when yes, you say, yes. real quick, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, when you say flattening the curve too, in this case, what you're really talking about is uh, to make that journey easier from one side to the other, right? To go exactly. from the shock to the new new normal. Okay, good deal. Just, well, just wanted to make sure everybody was with us on that. And remembering that the very bottom of this curve in this in this particular, and I, I imagine there's other charts that are similar to this, but the very bottom is resignation, yes. and it's surrounded by depression. So like you go from depression to resignation. Those are not good places to be very deep. Right. It's an depression is a natural emotion, uh, but the deeper it gets and the darker it gets, the more damaging it can become. Yeah. You know, we, we've heard that song, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, the truth yeah. is sometimes what doesn't kill you just leaves you maimed for life. Yeah. 
<laughs> unfortunately so <laughs> unfortunately so yeah. and yeah. and emotionally it's actually you know that's one of the interesting things about like chronic depression and why it's important to treat it is that and get treatment for it because there are people out there that say you shouldn't treat it this is just who you are um and you there's all these natural ways to take care of it you don't need to go out and see um you know a, a trained professional for these types of things but the truth is evidence has shown that the longer you're in there it actually does damage uh, a person emotionally and and right. that damage is it's, it, there's there's no upside to that um and, and so when we talk about when i'm thinking about flattening this curve how do we keep ourselves from hitting those really deep lows or at least not staying there so long that we become emotionally right. damaged right and um it was exciting because in putting that out there, we, we actually got some responses back uh, from, I, I guess, pseudo celebrities. Um, yeah. Well, Brit, celebrities Brit herself for us. responded too, I know. <laughs> That's and true. I, I know That's true. this is technically not her curve. She just shared it in her book. I recognize that, but she responded as well. So, yeah, talk, talk about some of the feedback because that was your yeah. question. So, so uh, John Wardman, um, who is a change and transfer, transformation leader, um, one of the things that he brought up is, you know, he, he, he really points out that everyone's going to be in different stages of this curve. And in fact, I think even if we're honest about this, this curve is not necessarily a curve for each one of us. We may bounce back and forth to feeling hopeful, to feeling depressed, to feeling like we may not stay nicely on the negative side of the curve and then move into the positive side. Or even if that is the curve, we may take that oscillation multiple times. Yeah, it's not um, necessarily perfectly linear, although we're seeing it that way in the graph. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, you know, so John uh, starts out by by pointing out that, you know, we're going to be in different stages on this curve. Um, and he says it, it's so much harder to transition from something when you don't really know the destination. And I, I really mm-hmm. like that because that's where I'm having trouble with this whole furlough thing is that, yes, I do have a concept of where I hope this is going to be this concept right. that I hope that travel comes back within the next 90 days, uh, at least to some degree, uh, that there's enough reason for us to come back and start working. I hope that that's there, but in the reality, none of us really know where we're going to be. Yeah. And I really like that. He points that out that, you know, and, and this is the same for all of the changes we make in life. If we knew the destination, we wouldn't, have to go through something like this yeah um yeah well i i even think steve and i'll let you go back to the answers in just a second but uh even when we have a pre-planned destination and we go through change we we know that we're still going to experience a number of these emotions here and the wonderful thing about life is hey this is the picture of where i'm heading and once we get there we find out it's not the way we planned, right? You know, the, the, no. the old adage that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And that's kind of a reality of life. So, yeah, it, but we, we do have to learn to embrace it and accept things along the way. Yes. So what, what, what well, were some of the other comments that you saw that you thought was interesting? Yeah. And, and actually, just to, just to finish up with what John's advice yes. was to us, he says, talking a lot. <laughs> talking yes. a lot helps flatten the curve. And, and that actually goes into the neuroscience of this as well, in that um, so much of, of what we do takes place in what we a lot of times refer to as your reactionary brain or your primitive brain. Uh, it's not your cognitive thinking part of your brain. It's, mm-hmm. 
makes up a larger portion of it. Um, but when we start talking, it allows the um, kind of the cognitive side of our brain to inform the reactionary side. I think yes. with that, it also makes sense to have productive talking. And that's yeah. where it does make sense to maybe seek out sometimes professional help as well. Because if you, if you have someone who has been professionally trained to help you talk through it, they're going to talk you through it in a way that will best inform that reactionary brain and help you have that narrative that, that promotes better mental health. Yeah. So we know from so many circumstances in our own lives, just having someone to share with and talk with, oftentimes that just putting words to thoughts, putting words to emotions, actually that in itself is freeing and liberating in its own way. And so, yeah, absolutely. Talking to somebody is important. I encourage any of our listeners, you know, we, we briefly hit on that in our podcast. I think it was last week of having that support group of five folks is often recommended from a number of resources. Mm -hmm. So just, just encourage folks to find someone to talk to if you need, and uh, don't, don't be shy about it because we're all in this journey, just in different stages, as she said. And for many of you that are on furlough, uh, remember that a lot of your, um, and this, you know, depends on where you're at and where you work, but many large organizations have some sort of um, counseling option that's that's free, um, yeah. where, where you, uh, a work helpline where you can call up and get three free counseling sessions. Uh, there's nobody right now that doesn't need that. Yeah. Um, and then Paul Cherry, who is... Um, a sales coach and is also a best-selling author. Uh, he responded to this as well, and, and he points out that he talks about the five stages of grief, grief by um, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and uh, points out that that aligns very closely with what we're looking at on that chart. Um, and he points out there's going to be a rebirth of new and exciting. <laughs> you know yes. that that th 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 there will be, but that requires a lot of patience. That one most of, and I, I think what what that means to me is a lot of the pain that we're feeling right now is patience pain. Mm. That is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Yes, but how long is this tunnel? And is there a train in it? Yeah. <laughs> is that light the train? <laughs> we hope not. Um, but but is there? Are we going to come out of this? Yes, we're going to come out of this. Uh, but there's going to be a lot that has to happen as we go through. You know, he says, it'll be worth it, uh, as tough as the, and painful as it is, let's try and enjoy what we can of the journey. And I think that's one of the interesting things about this is like, I was a history major and I, I loved reading about all the stories and the difficult things that people went through. And um, I remember after, um, after studying the Great Depression, realizing that my, my grandparents had lived through it and, and excited to ask them about it, hear their stories and things. It never dawned on me that it wasn't fun for them. <laughs> they yeah. didn't know when the Great Depression was going to end. They didn't even know it was called the Great Depression at the time, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, definitely something different about looking back at history than to live through history, that's for sure. Exactly. Completely different lens. Exactly. Yeah. But that was a, that was a real interesting um, midweek uh, distraction, I think, for us. Something something to look at, something to think about. 
Absolutely. And it, it definitely, uh, uh, again, as, as you had mentioned, uh, we had talked about it ourselves, one of the most shared posts that I've had. So I, I, I like to think that it resonated with folks and not only resonated uh, for the fact they could accept it and say, yes, that's where I am, but they also saw a need to share it with friends. Uh, some folks tagged their coworkers in it and different things. So re really was encouraging to see that. And uh, it, 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 without question, is a roller coaster ride. I know this week uh, I got word my son also is on furlough. You know, we've got four generations in my household. And so right now, out of eight of us, we have one income in my household. And so it was a bit of a setback to hear that about him being on furloughed because, yeah. uh, and his is for five months. And so his is going to extend longer than what yours and mine is. Uh, we so hope. it won't be. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So September 30th is his return date. And so just recognizing there's there's bumps along the way. And, uh, you know, we, we did get, uh, as somebody posted on Facebook, we did get our Trump bucks in. So we did get some money in the in the mail. The check was in the mail. So there are some some bright spots and some dark spots along the way, but quite quite a journey and, and really something that we can can learn from along the way that's for sure absolutely so and speaking of learning let's pivot here uh, we did share last week that we're going to talk about education this week and so let's go ahead we'll transition into that now and steve you and i had spoke and i, I know we recognize both you and i are of course in corporate learning and we're learning professionals in that light but as we started thinking about education uh, we kind of figured what we'd like to do is probably break this down into three chunks. And so for those of you listening, uh, this week we're going to kind of focus a little bit on K-12. through And Again, we're not experts by any stretch of the imagination, but we'll, we'll, we'll ask some questions to each other and, and maybe you'll have some input as well. And you can email us at furloughedmailbox at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. Uh, but we're going to talk about K-12 through this week. And then we'll talk about secondary or higher education next week. And then we'll wrap up the education series in talking about corporate education, just sharing some thoughts some questions and things that we have. So let, let's start out K through 12. So Steve, uh, you've shared that you had an interesting experience in your elementary school years. I know I did as well. And uh, we, we can share some things there. So let, let, I'll go ahead and turn it to you to kind of get us kicked off and some thoughts and insights do you have about K through 12? Sure, sure. And I have to say, I've thought more about what I was going to talk about in in this podcast or for this podcast uh, and been less certain what I was going to say <laughs> than any other one that, that we've done. You know, I, I spent a lot of times thinking about it, but I'm still, uh, I think it's going to be a surprise for all of us on, on whatever it is <laughs> that I end up sharing about. Uh, my experience uh, in elementary school. And, and, you know, it's interesting because, you know, um, Leonard, you kind of referred to a little bit that you, you know, some of your experiences was, are, are what led you to be working in the career you work in right now in corporate yes. education. And, and as soon as you said that, I thought, well, I, I, I feel like, all of my experiences, especially in my early education, if, if someone had told me that I would one day work in any type of education, I probably would have, 
I don't know. I, I would have either laughed or cried. Maybe cried. I think cry would be more. No, I'm getting away from this and I'm never coming back. Well, and Steve, for what it's worth, I think some of my teachers would have either laughed or cried if you told them I'd be in any form of education as well. Yeah. So maybe different any of reasons, my teachers similar would, would not believe you in any way. They'd be like, what? No, no, no. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's, there's no future for that boy. <laughs> um, well, and, I, and it, I did work very hard to be an average student and that, and that's, that's, I say that kind of in fun, but it is true. Uh, yeah. you know, most, most of my school, I, I remember being on the honor roll list once and it was in elementary school. And, uh, so it, it was not something that ever came easy to me. And to your point, that's, that's kind of once I landed in this field that I am now, why I embraced it so well, because I recognize there's, there's more and more we're learning about neuroscience and how our brains work. Obviously, when you and I were children, especially when I was a child, I'm a little older than you, uh, we didn't have the research that we have today. And you know what, tomorrow we're not going to have the research that we had today either. We'll have even more. And so yes. once I landed in this position in the corporate world, uh, I was fascinated because there's so much we know now that we didn't know. Um, and yeah. elementary school, like I say, for me, uh, it was a bit of a struggle. Um, uh, I think in part for me, I, I actually had hearing problems. I had problems with my ears. Nowadays, they just put tubes in your ears. But that was uh, back in the day where I don't think that was a solution until I was a little bit older. Mm -hmm. And so I really struggled uh, to, to hear what was happening, and therefore it was kind of reflected on my grades. Um, uh, uh, what what stands out to you as far as your education in childhood? Well, um, I think I think to attack that from a little different standpoint, you know, sure. I think it's what what in many ways stands out to me as what makes me a good presenter today. And you know, one of the things that I think it's Marcus Buckingham. If, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he's the one that does standout um, leadership yes. uh, training. Absolutely. And uh, one of the things that he always always points out and really hits hard is that don't waste your time on your weaknesses, that you need yes. to work on your strengths and build from that. And uh, one of the things when I first became a uh, corporate trainer is I was really surprised at how natural it was for me that I could get people um, to be successful who others really had no opportunity or they just really weren't successful at getting people to um, advance beyond a certain point. And, and even just from the perspective, I could engage a crowd or, or, or individuals who normally didn't get engaged. And, and what, I, what, I, um, what I think led to that is that when I preview a, a, a group of people that I'm about to teach, and it's the same for you, I know we all do a little preview and we figure out where they're at, I can recognize the individuals in that class that are having that post-traumatic stress experience because they're back in a classroom and they are not happy, they are not comfortable, they're not safe emotionally in that environment. And yes when you can make that environment become safe, they have the ability to learn. They start to be happy with that learning and it, it starts a snowball of success. And, and 
the reason I can recognize that post-traumatic stress <laughs> response is because um, my experience when I was going through, you know, and I was in elementary school was so bad <laughs> that uh, mm-hmm. years later when, when my kids were going, they were actually going to the same school, uh, the same building. It was, it was actually a different school. It was a charter school at that time. It was a different, different way everything was, was being laid out. But one of the things that was unique about this charter school is you had to donate your time. You had to go and spend three hours a week helping uh, the teachers at that school. And I remember the first time I went in there, and I had not been in that school since I walked out of it in sixth grade, but I wanted to throw up the entire mm-hmm. time. It was just like, get me out of here. I, I don't want to be here. And um, it was interesting because uh, I had to, to go through that for, well, well, let's see, I think it was three years that uh, my kids were in that school. And it didn't ever mm-hmm. go away. There was never a time I was happy to be, to be back there. Um, one of the things they talk about with memory is memory is stimulated oftentimes by being back in the same environment. And so being back right, in the yeah. environment, environment, yeah, yep. and, and it didn't trigger like exact, you know, um, I guess we'd call it episodic memories where you remember an episode or a story and you see things for the first person. It, it triggered emotional memories as I yes. went in there. And, um, you know, there was a study that was done uh, when I don't remember all the particulars of it, but basically where they took animals and they put them in a box and they, they, in for one group of those animals, they put a lever in there. So if you pulled on a chain or you, you pushed a button, it would allow them to escape the box. And the reason why they would want to escape this box is they were subjected to electrical shocks while they're in the box. So one group had a way to escape. The other group of animals didn't have a way to escape. And so they would take those shocks and they would take those shocks and they would take those two groups of animals after they had been through that experience. And the one group that had had a way to escape, they put them in another another environment where all they had to do was jump over a very small little fence and they would be free from having these electric shocks. Both groups had that same ability. They could, they could jump over this. But the one group that had been able to escape before, they easily figured it out and jumped out. The other group, even though they had a way to escape, they didn't even try. They just lay there and took yeah. the hits because they didn't believe there was a way out. What they had learned, and they, I think they call it learned helplessness, is right. yeah. that you just have to deal with it. And, you know, for me, when I was going through school and, you know, I didn't, I didn't know anything about this when I started kindergarten or anything, but being dyslexic. Uh, learning to read was essentially impossible at that age. Now, I know there are people who would disagree with me. And there's, you know, there's definitely a, um, a strong group of well-educated people that believe if you're not educated or if you're not learning by a certain age, that the chance that you'll learn later on in life is, is much less. And I, I can't argue with that statistic. Right. That statistic is there and it's accurate. However, what I believe we're dealing with is actually that learned helplessness. Because the experience, if you, if you take a child and you try and force them to read before they're neurologically capable of it, what you do is you create a bad experience and you add another bad experience and you add another bad experience. So now when they see that page, they don't see an escape lever. They just see 
pain after pain after pain, shock after shock after shock that they're going to have to go through. Mm. And, um, you know, for me, I was really lucky because, you know, being <laughs> being a product of, of special education and especially special education back then, which was um, a segregated education. You, you didn't go yes. into the same um, classrooms as other children and um, you 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 it, it was special like special buses that were short <laughs> exactly <Maybe>. exactly <laughs> and there was nobody yeah. there was nobody that thought there was anything special about you and you didn't think yeah. there was anything special about you either and I, I think one of the things that it really did give for give for me or what I got from this um is that I had an opportunity to experience disabilities that were much more severe than my own. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had an opportunity to see people who were even less privileged and yeah. who had every bit the same amount of capability. But because we focus, and I think most of our, our education system, unfortunately, is focused on finding a deficit, focusing on that deficit with the idea that you're somehow going to cure it. You know, it, it's like if you, if the education system would take a person who was a paraplegic and say, your walking skills are not good enough. So before we put you in a wheelchair, we're just going to really focus on getting your walking skills up. <laughs> yeah. And, well, and maybe yeah. at some point, <laughs> you know, you'll right. be able to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I think that really is, a, personally, I think a, that really is a lot of the result of trying to standardize everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, obviously class sizes are larger now than they might have been when you and I were kids too. Uh, so it's just continuing to, that that deficit or or what do you want to call it, yeah. is getting worse. In other words, you know, you got 30 kids now instead of 20. So now you have more undue burden as far as a teacher. And so, and then we have standardized tests, right? So, you know, you and I might've took one in sixth grade and took one again before we graduated, a couple, two, three, before we got out of school, or at least that's all I recall, maybe did more. Uh, but we had standardized you tests. You find out where on a line of one to a hundred, where you fell and all that kind of thing. But now we're talking government funding is resting on how well people succeed and go through the system. And so I really think a lot of that, Steve, is, is just based on kind of this. Um, it, well, Ken Robinson has a, a, a video you can find. I believe it's RMA. who put out a video of his, one of his books that he talks about the fact that it, basically, education today is somewhat based on the Industrial Revolution. So the simplest way I could look at it is a stamp that's just stamping out cookies. And we want every cookie to look exactly the same. And so in your case, you know, here you are a person with dyslexia. So they're trying to stamp you into a mold that you're not fitting. And just as you say, you were in a class with some other folks that had differing needs than what you had that were still, quote unquote, special education. But the system wasn't designed to accommodate them, even though you were in a special system where you were, right? I mean, you were actually Mm -hmm. segregated, as you said. So now you look at what we have. And today, most schools don't even have that segregation. And so be it good, bad, or indifferent, 
everybody is in the same classroom trying to raise to that same level. And like you said, Marcus Buckingham talks about the fact, you know, me playing basketball, for example, I can play and play and play and play basketball. And the best I'm ever going to be is a poor basketball player because I, that's not an ability that I have. So why would I want to focus on being at best a poor basketball player when I have other areas of giftings and other areas of skills uh, that I could accelerate in? Yes. And so and I th- it, it's just kind of twisted sometimes, I think. And I just want to say something about that that segregation thing, because you talked about even today it's it's not segregated, which I want to be very clear, I see as an incredible positive for okay, our right. our um, our special education system for a number of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons why it was so difficult to be successful in a segregated environment is you never really knew like I this is this is something that happened to me in second grade in second mm-hmm. grade. No, actually, it was third grade. I'm sorry. In third grade, I was put in a reading group, and it was the lowest reading group. And in that lowest reading group, we had the same book that um, the highest reading group had had in first grade. I recognized the book because I actually have a really good memory for those types of things. Like I can, I can, I can almost always remember, you know, something that, especially something visual. And so I. I, I saw that book, and it was the same book that the first graders in the highest reading group were reading. And I remember holding that book and just being so excited because I remember looking at those first graders reading, and it was like they were doing magic. Like, how yeah. are they able to do this? And for me to realize, I have just gotten to that point, <laughs> which was yeah. which was extremely behind. And and actually, I didn't even read it anywhere as good as those those. Uh, first graders had, I, 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 I had an achievement. But in most of special ed, you have a completely different curriculum. And mm. because you already have this belief that you're inferior, when you get these successes, you don't see them as successes. Like, for example, I, I remember working very hard on my handwriting. And I, I thought that I was going to get an A in handwriting. And when I got my report card, rather than running home and just giving it to my parents, I opened it before I went home. And I looked mm-hmm. under handwriting, and there wasn't an A there. There was an S, mm-hmm. which meant satisfactory. Right, right. But I didn't get an A. Now, at that time in special education, they didn't want you to feel like you had to be like these other kids. And so instead of getting an A, I got an S, but I wanted an A. And so I gave up on handwriting. And I, I didn't even try after that. And I remember my mom saying, well, why aren't you trying? Why aren't you putting this effort into it? You were doing, and my teacher, you know, you were working so hard before your handwriting was getting so much better. And it was like, I'm done. I'm done. I put everything yeah. into it and I got an S. Yeah. And, you know, where, where that's what you're dealing with, it doesn't make sense to segregate. And also it doesn't make sense to segregate because you'll never get an opportunity to show people what you're good at. Right. You'll never get yeah. an opportunity to shine. And on the same note, one of the things that um, and, and you know, I, I, I tell people now that I have dyslexia and um, but I didn't do that two or three years ago because mm-hmm. I, I always felt like it would put me behind. And I don't think I was wrong either that if um, in some of my positions, if people around me had known that I had dyslexia, for example, when I was a QA um, at a call center, as a QA at a call center, we had to write up a lot of um, 
reviews on people. And I'm certain that if I had said, oh, yes, you know, because when you work someplace, they say, we're going to make accommodations for you. Do you have any disabilities that you'd like us to know about so we can make these accommodations? I, I'm, I may be wrong, but I, I feel fairly certain that had they known that, somewhere in someone's mind, they would have said, I don't think he can be successful at this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's no question there is uh, the stigma of, hey, that person is less than, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it definitely, definitely something that uh, I, I think it that the upside is we're overcoming that a lot in our culture and in our society today. But uh, yeah, definitely there. And one of the things that kind of stands out from what you're saying, just kind of back to what you originally mentioned, was learned helplessness. So when we learn that we cannot achieve what is expected, it, it can be easy to get into that place of, of, of a sensation of helplessness. And then unfortunately, that can easily be perceived by somebody else as either laziness or just a lack of effort as well. Um, I know from my own experience in school, uh, I always have had, and I admittedly still do have trouble with comprehension. Um, Like (laughs) something as simple as reading a newspaper, I've learned that large print in newspaper is always repeated in the article. So I have learned just out of force of habit, not to read large print. I'll read the title, but if there's other captions that are in large Mm -hmm. print, I don't read them because they're elsewhere in the story. Now, the problem is sometimes they're not always there. (laughs) So so I do get burned on that. Uh, But two, I've always struggled to know what is the important thing I should be taking away from the learning. And that, that really is the true essence of what my comprehension challenge is, is, you know, if you want me to know something, why are you giving me 10,000 words? Just tell me in as few words as possible, and then I'll know it, and I'll know it's important. So I, I don't know if I have a broken discerner or what it is. But because of that, it led me into a special reading class. So between fifth and sixth grade, uh, for whatever reason, I had to go to summer reading class. And I know it was because of my comprehension. And so I was in there with all these other kids who were struggling with the reading. Well, I was reading two grades above what grade I was in, but my memory of what I read and figuring out was was important out of what I read was where my challenge was. And so I was embarrassed to be in a class where they were still practically fumbling through Dick and Jane, and I could read, you know, two two or more grades ahead of myself. Uh, but it was because of the testing. When they did testing on me, they weren't testing me to read out loud. They were testing me on my comprehension and not my reading skills. And so that's that's where I see that there's some some cracks or some opportunities in mm-hmm. elementary education. Um, there absolutely and, and then, are. Yeah, and, and another another thought that just comes to mind as well as we're talking about that, it, just as you had said, you you being in special education. Uh, Howard Gardner talks about multiple intelligences, and it's a it's an interesting theory that I I like. Anyhow, is what he talks about is you know so I may not have done well in reading comprehension, but I might have been a whiz at math, or I might have been a super athlete, and so he kind of expands the idea of 
intelligence and not just a in an IQ sense, but from just an academic sense of being beyond academics into other areas. And I really like the fact that he does that. And so I, I think one of the things that we can do to continue to improve K through 12 education is to focus back to what you said about Buckingham, focus on where children do well and empower them to leverage those skills more. And in doing that, I know just from my own reading comprehension, you know, when I am encouraged in doing well, uh, it's sort of like that old adage, the high t uh, rising tides raises all boats. So when I am encouraged in some areas of my academic learning, I that comprehension area tends to improve some with it as well, just as a result of it. And I think that's kind of one of the benefits of having that mindset, Howard Gardner does. Yeah, I believe the first thing that we have to have for young people learning, and this is the same for older people learning, but uh, since your first experiences happen when, when you're young, is you have to have success. That um, above all, if, if someone is not succeeding in one area, you need to give them a place to succeed in another. They need to learn that there is a lever that will let them out. <laughs> so they're not just taking the shocks over and over again. And for me, where that happened actually was in fourth grade. And this was kind of a pretty drastic intervention that ended up happening. But uh, when I was in fourth grade, um, my mother, one way or another, found out that uh, during reading time, I was being sent down to be with the second graders. And I remember even then, I was not even remotely up with them. I, I think for all intents and purposes in fourth grade, I was still completely or functionally illiterate. And um, when, when my mother found out about this, she was like, no, this can't be, you know, we've, we've got to, we've got to. And I think something she had seen happen over the years, it wasn't like out of nowhere, but I think by fourth grade, she realized that, um, public education was not going to ever get me up to speed. And I, I had other friends that were in a similar situation and things have not turned out as well for them uh, because they didn't have this intervention at this point. But what my mother did is she said, you know what, I'm, I'm pulling you out of school for half a day. For the reading time, you're going to stay at home with me and we're just, we're, we're going to do it one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. We're going to do it our way. Now, one of the things about my mother that was different is now she may have not had all of the education or all of the special background or had read the studies or all, you know that you would expect people who are professionals in the special edge uh, arena would do uh, but she had time and she had creativity yeah and with those two things when something didn't work rather than just saying you know what well we'll do more of that item should try right. it another way you know yes. um one of the things that that she's told me and you know i remember working with her i don't remember what theories she used to try and teach me is that uh she learned very early on that phonetics were a waste of time that she mm. needed to stop doing phonetics and just do word recognition like i talked about i can remember how things look pretty well and so by just teaching the shapes of the words that worked much better than trying to to somehow explain why it's important to know that a, um, a B and a D 
although they're the exact same shape or different things and why a nine and a P is not the same thing as a B and a D, you know, when, when really the shapes are, are essentially identical, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. but, but put it in a word and then it yeah. makes sense, right? Don't, don't yeah. break it down into these little phonetic things and try and teach, you know, which compounds makes different sounds so that you can sound out a word. And in the end, nobody reads phonetically anyways. Can you imagine if you read the newspaper phonetically? <laughs> you might come right. across a word you haven't seen before. But, um, you know, I know that's one of the things that she worked at, but it was creativity and it was time. And it didn't require, yeah. a, I know that she did do research on what other people were doing to help people who were having, you know, trouble reading. But she didn't come into this with a master's degree in special education. You know, she came into it with a lot of heart, a lot of desire. And, and, and more than anything, making me successful. And what's interesting about this year when I was in fourth grade is she pulled me out for half a day. And at first it was like, oh, goodness, this is going to be horrible. <laughs> because one, now all my friends are going, what are you doing? Why are you only coming in after lunch? Um, but also just thinking, I'm going to have to do this with my mom. And at school, I had a way of surviving reading time. I had my coping skills. I had my way of withdrawing. You could fly under the radar. I could fly under the radar. I could be invisible. Exactly. But sitting there with mom, that was not going to be an option. So I was not terribly excited about this going into it. But it's crazy how within a very short period of time, we weren't just doing reading at, you know, the, the half a day but we would wake up early and we would work on reading until I, until lunchtime, I'd eat lunch, then I'd go to school. I'd get home from school and then we would work all the way till bedtime. During Christmas mm. break, we took half a day on Christmas off. <laughs> yeah. And the rest yeah. of the time we were working and, and we went through all of that curriculum, you know, until at the end of the school year, I was there. I went back to school and I went in with the fourth graders. I was caught up to where they were at. I had actually finished the rest of the year. So I actually was ahead of where, where they were going into it. So it gave me this opportunity, Mm. uh, to be successful. And, um, it made all the difference. It didn't mean that I didn't have, you know, difficulties. It doesn't mean that I'm a good reader today. (laughs) Um, I certainly can read, you know, I've, 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 I've got college degrees and I've had to read a lot. I was a history major. So I had to read a book a week at least, you know, as I went through there. So, you know, I I may not be the fastest, but, um, and it also taught me how to find my, my, my superpowers when it comes to reading. Like I don't read nearly as fast as most people, but I can remember and retain that information much better than most people. Maybe that's why we get along. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. I'll read, you remember it. <laughs> you, you read it, I'll remember it. There we go. There we go. Um, but yeah. I think that's an important element in it, that sometimes yeah. you can't fix everything. But if you can give a child an early education an outrageous, overwhelming success at one point, you know, because I was still in special ed after that, um, I, I I remember even in high school, and part of the problem is you have a, a record that follows you. So once sure, in special sure. ed, it's really difficult to get out. Yes. Um, I, I know that, that 
special ed attorneys and then would tell you, no, it's not hard to get out. You just have to have your parents sign it, uh, assign you out. Well, that's probably true from that, from that perspective. But from a, a child's perspective that's in it, it's very difficult to work your way out. And I remember in high sure. school, I got put back into special ed um, English. I didn't need it, but I was put into it. Uh, because that was where, and it was very frustrating. It was very frustrating to be put back. And in my, um, my junior year, uh, we went in for what they, it's called your IEP, your individualized education plan. If you were in special ed, you have to renew that every year. It's federal law in order to get federal, mm -hmm. federal money. And, um, actually, no, I'm sorry. It was my junior year, my halfway through my junior year, I, was in that and I said, I'm not going back into special ed English. My, my special ed English teacher was there. <laughs> I'm like, I am yeah. not going back. I'm not going back. I'm done. I, you put me in a regular class. They're like, but you might not do as well. And I remember saying, I would much rather take a D there than an A here. Right. And um, my, my, my teacher, you know, at the time I was not really pleased with what he said, but in hindsight, he taught me something incredibly valuable in doing this is he taught me how to advocate for myself. He said, okay, if you yes. want to do this, fine. This is the teacher yeah. you would have go down and talk to her, tell her that you've missed out on half a year and see if she'll help you. And so I did. I, and I was not happy because I didn't want to go down there. It was embarrassing and, and uh, scary to me. And uh, I went into that teacher's class and I told her, you know, what my circumstances was. And she said, I will take you with open arms and we'll make sure that you're successful here. And I, and I was. Yeah. And kind of what I'm hearing you say, Steve, with your story in particular, because you're def definitely different than mine, although I still had bad experience. Um, but it, it, I think it's a great picture of, of what ultimately somehow could be missing from that elementary education from that K through 12 education and no fault of the teachers, no fault of any one individual per se, but just as a collective, it tends to happen. Uh, so I, I made notes some things here, uh, support, you know, cause I, I myself was failing ninth grade English. We had vocabulary words and definitions for those words every single week. And I was failing and my teacher pulled me aside. And this is one of those, critical conversations, just one single conversation that changed my life. Uh, Mr. Ralph Houck pulled me aside and said, look, this is where you are, showed me my grade. I was just above an E. Uh, e was a failing grade where we were. I was at a D minus six weeks into the school year. And uh, I, was, I was going to fail if I didn't improve. And so he pulled me aside and said, look, this is where you're at. And I know you're capable of doing more. So he, he gave me his support, but he also gave me some hope. And it sounds like that's what your mother did with you. And so he said, I know you can do it. And then what he did is he gave me some options as to some possible ways and how I could accomplish what I needed to. And so rather than just, hey, here it is, you figured out, he said, get you a study buddy, do this, do this, do this, you know, repeat repetition. And he provided some options for me. And so because he supported me and gave me hope, then I was willing to take some of those options. And I did. I found a study buddy. We went over the words. I would hum the words in my head, kind of have a little tune for them so I'd be able to remember them, the whole thing like that. And so 
I went from starting at week six in school with a D minus, I went to completing the class at the end of the school year with a B plus. And it was really because uh, Mr. Hauk took the time to pull me aside, provide some suggestions, give me hope. And I think if we can do that more often in that ed education, if the younger you are, just as she said, because that's kind of where you're, you don't know what you don't know to begin with. Uh, but if we can provide that to kids at a younger age, and there's organizations that do that and do it well. Uh, Blue Man Group has a school called Blue School, and they're very diverse in the way they teach. Uh, Jeffrey Canada from the Harlem Children's Zone. And we've seen, you know, I'm, some inspirational movies, you know, take the lead with Antonio Banderas and Ghost Riders with Hilary Swank and Lean on Me with Morgan Freeman. These are all based on true stories of somebody that sort of broke the rule book and set that aside and said, yeah, you know, we need this minimum standard, but by golly, we can make an exception by caring about kids and showing them that they're capable. And I think that uh, that seems to me to be the key. Any, any last thoughts before we wrap it up, Steve? Sure. Just a couple of things that, that come to mind. And, and one would be any of you who are in learning and development or work in the corporate training world or really in any kind of training world. I think one of the things that uh, we want to make sure that we, we take away from this is remember that when people come to you, they may have not had a good experience in education. And so before you try and teach, you need to first try and make it safe. If you can make it safe, then you can make it fun. <laughs> and if you can make it fun, you can help them learn. And for anyone that's in that situation where they've got a child who is struggling through the early education years, a couple of things I want to say to you, keep struggling. Even if <laughs> at times there's tears, both yours and theirs, it's worth it. Keep working with them. Don't lose hope. Uh, sometimes, even though... They may not believe you when you say, I know you're smart. I know you're capable. They need somebody to say it to them. So keep doing that and keep being creative. Nobody has come up with a formula for how your child learns. And so if something works, stick with it. If you read something that says a child can't learn in a certain way, don't necessarily believe it. Or after a certain age, don't necessarily believe it. Your child is different give them a chance. So those are my, my closing thoughts. And um, Leonard, I really just enjoyed talking with you again. Um, I'm looking forward to spending some time talking to you uh, next week about uh, how we learn after we get out of K through 12. All right. Great. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. Great, great parting thoughts. And, and two, just quick add to that, just as you became a self-advocate, you know, if we teach our children that they can learn and embed in them that desire to learn, then they can never fail. They'll continue to grow and continue to grow. So, yeah, just as Steve said, next week we'll talk about secondary education. So if you have any thoughts about this week's topic that we talked about K through 12, or if you want to give us insight as to what you think about secondary education or college years, just contact us at furloughed mailbox at gmail.com, furloughed 
mailbox at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Any feedback you have is always accepted. So with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up another week. So as Steve said, thank you again for being a part of our journey together as we furlough together. <laughs> and uh, also don't forget our sponsor is Upwords Unlimited. Upwords, W-O-R-D-S, unlimited.com, where they help folks with their connections, their conversations, with collaboration, and community. Thanks, folks. Until next week, goodbye.